Welcome to Anchored, a podcast brought to you by The Word Unleashed, the preaching and teaching ministry of Tom Pennington. For more of Tom's content or to connect with us, visit our website at www.thewordunleashed.org. Now here's Tom exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. The final view primary view. There are a number of offshoots of these, but these are the primary ones. The final primary view and the one that that I hold to and that uh, I want you to embrace, and I'll show you why as we go through the Scripture, is what's called the Reform view. That simply means it's the view of the Reformers, which goes back ultimately to Augustine himself, as we'll see in a few minutes, and back to the Scripture ultimately, which is the most important issue. But historically, it goes back to them. The Reformed view says that Adam's sin, watch the difference here, brought guilt, corruption, and death to all mankind. In other words, not only do I have corruption because of what Adam did, not only am I born a sinner, but I actually have guilt because of what Adam did. Reformed view teaches that at birth, our entire nature is polluted by sin. We're under God's just condemnation and we're unable to do anything that pleases God or attain salvation. Our entire nature is polluted and we can do absolutely nothing, this is key, that pleases God or attains salvation. Romans 5.12, the Reformed view says, teaches this, we incur death because the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to us. Those who hold this view are All those who hold to a Reformed soteriology include some Baptists, some Bible churches, Presbyterians, and so forth. Now, this final view is the one that most closely follows the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, when you look at that, if you've not heard this before, your first reaction is to say, wait a minute, that's not fair. What do you mean God's going to impute guilt to me for something somebody else did. Well, wait a minute. Don't say that too quickly for two reasons. First of all, because everyone who argues that this is unfair has in fact personally committed many sins. And Scripture indicates that it's those sins that will be the basis for God's judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 6, He will render to each person according to their deeds. Colossians 3.25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. In other words, the sinner who ends up going to hell doesn't go to hell because of Adam's guilt that's been imputed to him. He goes to hell because of the deeds he has chosen to do. But that doesn't mean he doesn't stand guilty because of Adam's sin. There's another problem. If you think it's unfair to be represented by Adam and to have his guilt imputed to you, then you should think it's equally unfair to be represented by Christ and to have his righteousness imputed to you. It works the same way. If one's unfair, so is the other. God's methodology is the same in both actions. So, it's absolutely certain that we have been deeply affected by Adam's sin, but exactly how did that happen? Through what means? Now, here's where those who hold the reform view disagree. How exactly did we get original sin? 
There are two basic views of those who are reformed in their doctrine of salvation, who embrace the clear biblical doctrine that the guilt of Adam's sin has been imputed to every man. They're divided on how that guilt was imputed. First of all, there's the, and I know this is a little technical, but stay with me, because it lays a foundation that's important. There is what's called the Augustinian, the realistic, or the seminal view. It's called by all those names, so I put them all up there so you would know. What does that mean? Well, basically, this view says that every human being was seminally President Adam. All mankind was in his loins. And when he sinned, therefore, we participated in his sin. How do they defend this view? Well, they'll take you to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, which says that Levi, although he was not yet born, was seminally present in Abraham and paid tithes to Melchizedek. You remember that passage? I won't take time to turn there, but that's the passage they'll use. They'll say the same thing happened with Adam. We were seminally present in Adam, and when he sinned, we sinned too, because we were there. Those who have defended this view through the history of the church are Augustine, Calvin, Luther, and Strong is a more recent proponent of it. Now, let's critique this view. There are a couple of issues that bother me about this view. First of all, why only the sin of Adam and not every person in whom we were seminally present? Why is it that God only causes us to be guilty for Adam's sin and not everybody else's sin in whom we were seminally present? In other words, our entire generation back to Adam. Series of generations back to Adam. There's another problem, and that is, why only Adam's first sin and not all his sins? if this is the correct view. Why just that first act of disobedience and not every other sin that he committed in his hundreds of years of life? One other issue, and that is, why isn't Christ also guilty of Adam's sin then, since he too was seminally present through Mary in Adam? So there are several questions that those who are critics of this view raise. Now, this, the, the second primary view that Reformed soteriology has in original sin is called the federal covenant or representative view. What does that mean? Well, basically it just teaches that Adam represented every human being. He served as our representative. Charles Hodge writes and defines it this way, in virtue, in virtue of the union, federal and natural, between Adam and his posterity... His sin, though not their act, is so imputed to them that it is the judicial ground of the penalty threatened against him coming also upon them. In other words, you're going to be guilty for Adam's sin because he was your representative. Now, how do they defend this view? Well, two ways. First of all, they say there is an implied covenant in Genesis 2, what they call the covenant of works, a covenant between God and Adam. Basically, God said that Adam... Here's the covenant. You don't eat the tree, you live. You have eternal life. You eat the tree, you disobey, and you will be the representative of all mankind and they will all be guilty of your sin. Now how can they say there's a covenant in Genesis 2? Well, they'll argue that the word for covenant doesn't have to be present. It wasn't in 2 Samuel 7 when David 
had a covenant made with him, but later it's referred to as a covenant. They'll argue that the elements of a covenant are present there in Genesis 2. There are two parties. There is obviously a binding agreement that's made. There's penalty in, uh, put in place. And they would point to Hosea 6-7, which talks about Adam transgressing the covenant. And they would say, see, there's evidence that in fact there was a covenant between God and Adam. There's a second reason, though, that they would say that this is the correct biblical view, and that is because of the parallels between Adam and Christ in Romans 5.12. We'll look at that in just a minute. That's a key text, and we're going to turn there. I just want to give you this foundation before we look at the biblical text, so stay with me. Now, those who defend this view are theologians, American theologians like Hodge, Burkhoff, Grudem, and Robert Raymond. When you critique this view, the key issue is that it seems to contradict a couple of passages, Deuteronomy 24 and Ezekiel 18, which talk about no man ever being considered guilty for someone else's sin. Now, let me just tell you that both of these views have problems. In spite of that, I personally believe the federal headship view, this view, is the most biblically correct, and let me tell you why. Because in Romans 5, whatever our connection is to Adam, we have the same kind of connection to Christ. He compares the two through that entire passage. That means if we were not seminally present in Christ when He obeyed, but He was instead obedient as our representative, our substitute, then that must be the relation we bore to Adam as well. That He was our representative, our substitute, if you will, there in the garden. So I think this view is the closest to the concept of Adam serving as our substitute or our representative. But we'll get there in a moment when we get to the text. Now, when we talk about original sin, let me give you a summary of what's included. We're talking about Adam's guilt imputed to us. And secondly, we're talking about our inheriting pollution or corruption in our beings. Now, the second point is usually broken down two ways. This pollution or corruption issues in total depravity, you've heard that word before, and in total inability. That's a crucial concept that we'll talk about in coming weeks. I'm going to save that one because as I mentioned before in his classic book, The Bondage of the Will, Luther told Erasmus that by raising the issue of the freedom of will, he had raised the main issue. In fact, he says, if you don't get this right, you don't end up with a biblical understanding of salvation. Conversely, if you get this right, the issue of total inability, you'll always land at a biblical doctrine of salvation. So we're going to look at that sort of all on its own. It's a crucial concept. And it has a lot of practical ramifications. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Anchored Podcast. If you'd like to access additional content from Tom, or if you're interested in partnering with The Word Unleashed, please visit our website at www.thewordunleashed.org and be sure to connect with us on social media. We look forward to studying God's Word together with you on the next episode of Anchored.